Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in the Gospel of Luke, please. Uh, specifically the third chapter. We're going to today, I guess, begin in earnest our study of Luke's gospel. Now, uh, we actually started this at Christmas, and you may not have realized it, but all of our passages at Christmas kind of centered in Luke's gospel. And we did that on purpose because we just feel like it's time for us to, to kind of get into an extended study again. Now, before any of you who were here when we studied the book of Ephesians start to cringe and say, my Lord, how long will we be here? Uh, not that long. We'll take breaks along the way, just like we did with the book of Ephesians, you know, and, and, uh, but your Bibles will ultimately start to just fall open to these passages of scripture, but we'll have some emphases along the way that we'll do. And, uh, but I think it's important for us to study the scripture like this because how God gave it to us. And it's important for us to see the whole counsel of the word of God. And it's been a long time since we've just kind of hung out in one of the gospels. I should mention today that, you know, we have four gospels and uh, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think one of the questions that always comes about those is what are distinctive about them? Why, why do we have four? Why would we need four? And, and it's an interesting question. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are grouped together and called synoptic gospels. It's a word that just means they have a lot in common. And there's a lot of overlap if you read them. But even in those three, there are some major differences that show up for us that are important. And, and they're, they're not differences uh, that are contradictory differences as much as they are shades of importance. And I, I want you to think about it like this. When Matthew writes his gospel, he's writing to a group who are primarily Jewish. So they have a, a distinct background and understanding. That's very different than Mark who writes his gospel and it's, it's very in, intent on getting you to the end of the story fast. Mark says this word, if you go look at the, the gospel of Mark, notice how many times he says immediately, immediately, immediately. He's running you towards the cross of Christ because he knows that's the focus of everything. Luke is giving you a, a broader understanding as a Gentile world uh, what was going on and what it means to be a Gentile and a follower of Christ. And, and John gives us kind of the innermost perspective uh, of that inner three. You remember Jesus was, had disciples, but he also had three out of that group that he was always calling out. So it was Peter, James, and John. They're, they're always with Jesus kind of being taken away to these, these kind of inner meetings. And so he's shading that. Now, here's what would happen. If we wrote a, a history about the events of our church over the next five years, and we picked four of you to write those events, and we told you, now don't talk to each other all about this. I mean, spend some time writing it yourself. Every one of you would have something that you're like, that was really important right there, and you'd write maybe at length about it, and somebody might just note that it happened. Somebody might say, well, this was more important right here. This, we really need to spend some time, because from my perspective, this is what happened, and here's what the Gospels did. God used each of the four distinct viewpoints of the gospel writers to give us this beautiful picture of who Christ is and how salvation comes to us. So I wanna, as you've turned to Luke, I'm gonna read actually from the first chapter. You don't need to turn there, but I think it's important that you see the introduction that he gives uh, in Luke chapter one. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us 
It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things which you have been instructed. Now, if we understand what his purpose is, then it helps us to understand what's going on. I do need to make mention that when Luke wrote his gospel, he had a, a secondary portion attached to it that is now separated in your Bible. It's called the book of Acts. So it was one book, Luke Acts, and he picks up right at the ascension of Christ in Acts, right as he leaves off and as, as his gospel ends. And, and he, he does that because he's wanting you to understand it with the certainty that he writes to his good friend Theophilus. And, and, uh, Theophilus, sorry. And he said, I, I worked all weekend to not make sure I didn't say Theophilus, and I did it. <laughs> you get up here and speak sometime. It's great. I love these big words, you know. You know how I do with these things. It's, see, now I can't say it because it's all stuck in my head. And I'm worried because I've got some bigger words to get to in a minute. I even li we listened to them last night in our home over and over again. It didn't help. Theophilus, there we go. So, so it's important, Luke was a physician. He's not a theologian. But as he's writing these things, what he's writing is with a unique perspective for detail about these things. And I think you'll, you'll really enjoy this study of the gospel. I want you to turn to, to Luke chapter three though, if you're not already there. And I just want to read the first two verses because really as Luke begins, he's starting to give you the life and times of Jesus Christ. And he's going to set the stage for you in world history. In the, 50, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke wants us to understand the time period of Jesus Christ. And as he's writing to a Gentile world, it's no wonder that he starts with some Gentile references. And some of these you're probably familiar with, at least you've heard. You would know what a Caesar is. A Caesar is somebody in the Roman world, right, who's ruling. And at this time, Israel is now occupied territory by the Roman army. And he's telling you that Caesar, Tiberius, is over everything. And he says, there's Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate is somebody that if you've read the Gospels, or, or you've been around at Easter, we talk about him often because it was Pontius Pilate that actually conducted the second trial of Jesus Christ. The first trial happened with Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and they, they realized we wanna kill this guy and we don't have the power to do it, so they take him to Pontius Pilate. And, and Pontius Pilate is an interesting figure because he's constantly trying to keep the peace. He, he's not viewed very well, and so he wants to appease the Jews, but he really doesn't wanna kill Jesus. And you may remember it was his wife that said, listen here, I've had a dream about this man, have nothing to do with him. And so Pontius Pilate comes back and he says, I wash my hands of him. You do with him what you want, but I find no guilt in this guy. He's always passing the buck. He, he, he doesn't want to take responsibility for his own actions. He wants it to be somebody else's responsibility. But Pontius Pilate is actually the one who gives the authoritative word, we're going to crucify 
the Messiah. Herod the Tetrarch, and that word Tetrarch just means ruler. He's a ruler in Galilee, and it says that his brother Philip is Tetrarch of these other regions. Now, that's important for us because John the Baptist is actually going to have a run-in with Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee a little bit later on because he confronts him about some sin in his life. He says, you've taken a wife from your brother Philip, and she's not yours, and it's wrong. And it actually puts John in prison and it takes his head. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing what happens here. He's, he's, he's really, he's, he's executed for being a stand-up guy who tells the truth. But these are the sons of Herod that persecuted Christ the Lord when he was born. Do you remember that when Jesus was born, the Herod came and, and what did he do? He wanted to murder all the children that were two years old and younger. younger and, and Joseph, warned in a dream, took Mary, his wife, and the child, and they fled they were in refugee status immediately, right? That's what's going on in their lives. And so then he introduces us to Annas and Caiaphas. And this is interesting because Annas, you can't have two high priests at one time, but what happens here is that Annas has been deposed and it's Caiaphas, the high priest. And what's going on is that he's still kind of the marionette behind the scenes pulling the strings. But much like we don't take away the title president, from someone who's a former president. I mean, you still say, if, if President Obama walked in the room, I hope you wouldn't say like, hey, Barack. I hope you would say, hello, President Obama or President Trump, or maybe you saw in the news, President Carter has been moved into hospice care. He, he retains the title for the rest of his life in that. And it, it's a term of respect. And, and the high priest retained the title for the term of his life, but he's constantly behind the scenes. And it's his son-in-law who's now the high priest and he's really just a puppet because nothing is happening that doesn't go on without Annas' permission. But I want you to see, immediately Luke introduces us to someone he's already told us a little bit about when he introduces us to John the Baptist. Now, this is not John the disciple, but look in verse three. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming baptism and the repentance of sin. This is John's message. And what we see is that John is not the disciple John, it's John, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Now, if we could go back and I could just shorten the story for you a little bit. Do you remember that there was a guy named Zachariah serving, right? He's ministering before the Lord. We studied this at Christmas. And the scripture says he had a visitation by the angel Gabriel and you're gonna have a son. And he's like, I don't believe it. Give me a sign. And he says, well, you won't speak another word until he's born. That's who's going on here. John the Baptist right there. That's who Luke is introducing us to. And you remember that he's cousins with Jesus because Elizabeth, his mother, is Mary's cousin, right? So, so there's a relationship here and there's this great story where the spirit of the Lord came upon John the Baptist when he was still in his mother Elizabeth's womb. Mary comes in to visit with Elizabeth and before she can even say, hey, I'm pregnant, all of a sudden the baby leaps within Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth kind of blurts out this prophecy of like, it's the mother of my Lord walking in the door here. I mean, it's this, it's this incredible moment where the spirit of the Lord has come upon, but now the word of the Lord has come upon John the Baptist. It's an amazing thing to see that God's word in verse two came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he's going to be the forerunner. Now, the other gospels give us a little shading, don't they, about who John the Baptist is when they tell us that he came out of the wilderness eating locusts and honey and wearing camel hair. So he's not dressed like normal people. I mean, this is, you know, he, he walks in the room today and everybody goes, huh. You know, I mean, 
He, he gets your attention before he ever speaks a word. And when he hands you the honey pot and the locust and says, you know, want a bite? I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, something is different about who he is, but he's the forerunner. And John occupies this unique place in our scriptures. Now, I want you to think about this. Do you remember that Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill the law, every bit of it. And he says every jot and tittle in, in Matthew's gospel. And, and what that means is like dot the I, cross the T, every bit of it is going to be fulfilled. That's what I came to do. So if we look at Jesus, you have the Old Testament and obviously Jesus, please don't say like, when did Jesus start existing? Because always has, right? Jesus has always been, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been. They're before the Old Testament. They're, they're speaking the creation into existence. The Old Testament is being written. And then Jesus comes over here and fulfills the Old Testament, all of it. John has one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. And he's the bridge for us to see what's going on here. Now, remember what's happened. In Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, his word is spoken. And then we have in your Bible, it's just a page or two. But in reality, between Malachi and Matthew is how long? 400 years, right? Now, I want you to think about this silence and how it's deafening. For 400 years, there's been sacrifices. For 400 years, there's been worship. But there's no word from the Lord. And the Lord had always spoken to his people through the prophets, right? And there's no word from the Lord. And the silence is deafening. And, and you probably know what I mean. Well, maybe you don't. Because when I often say these things, it feels like more of a confession of my life and not yours. But, but you know, have you ever, you, you don't have arguments with your spouse. But if you did, maybe sometimes you've experienced, or you could at least relate Hey, what's wrong? Nothing. Really? Silence. When it's silent, something's wrong. Can you imagine how that must have felt? We don't know what that's like because we have the living and active word of God in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit ministering to us. We have Jesus who has come. Our faith has, has been placed in him. The, the culmination of all of human history is in Christ. And we, but they didn't have that. And so John is this forerunner. And in verse three, read it again with me. He went into the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now the vicinity of the Jordan He's not in the religious centers. The Jordan River is not, it doesn't run through Jerusalem. He's not hanging out up there. He's outside. He's in the country. He's been in the desert. And there's not much there. And it says he moves out of that desert and begins calling people to repentance. I don't want you to miss this today. Every great movement of God starts with a call to repentance. It always does. What, what we're witnessing around our country right now with, with what happened at Asbury and is now spreading around the country and our country needs it so much, it doesn't start with exuberance and joy. It starts with a call to repentance. It starts with renewal in our lives of understanding that all of our lives are in constant need of renewal. Every one of us. Every one of our lives needs that. Uh, that's why we have a renewal conference. It will start tonight at six o'clock. I plan on seeing you here because if you say today, I don't need to be there for that, you're the person that needs to be here for that. We all need it. It happens all the time in our lives. 
Because it, it's not enough for us just to be saved and, and be in a process of sanctification, but we drift a little bit and, and we constantly need that. And I wanna just say this to you. It, it's, it's why we place such an emphasis for our students to go to student camp every year. Because every year they get a chance to have a reset. They get quiet time with the Lord. They don't have any other agenda. And that's one of the things that keeps us from renewal so often is that our minds are cluttered. There's something in our ears all the time. We're watching things all the time. We don't have time to hear that still small voice of the Lord. But every great move of God starts that way. And I, I want you to think about it like this with me. It doesn't start in exuberance or passion. Think back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this great moment with the Lord and the first words out of his mouth, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Every time the disciples had this great revelation of who Christ was, they were always immediately reminded of who they were and how they didn't measure up, right? Because if we start thinking so highly of ourselves, like God must be really happy with me today. I mean, we don't understand that our lives are in constant need of renewal with the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance so that our hearts, minds, and lives align with his purposes. That's what we're seeing around our country, I hope. But repentance is key. And it's a central theme in, in, in through the entire book of Luke and the entire book of Acts. It has it throughout. And it's central for us because for us, if we don't understand that we're in constant need of renewal with the Lord, that it's easy for that fire that started in our lives to grow a little bit dimmer this week. We need a little more gasoline poured on that. We need a little bit of that warmth back in our lives. I want you to think about what repentance is. We see it in the scriptures and Luke does such a beautiful job of explaining it for us. Luke introduces us to someone in the book of Acts named Saul. And the Bible says that Saul, who later became Paul, was at the martyring of Steve, uh, at a man named Stephen. And, and the Bible says, and we, we just missed this for a second. Can I just picture this for you? They're stoning this guy named Stephen, and it says that they laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. Why do you take your coat off? So you can zing it. We shouldn't repass that and just miss the brutality of that moment and what was taking place and that Saul was standing there watching all of this happen, seeing it and totally unfazed by it, in fact, became more rabid in his persecution of the local church. I mean, that's who he was. But the Bible says that he met the Lord on the road to Damascus and his whole life changed. That's a picture of repentance. His life changed. Repentance isn't just, I know what I'm doing is wrong. Repentance isn't just feeling bad about what I did. A lot of times in our lives, we, we say things, even as believers, we do this, and this is just terrible. Well, I'm not perfect. When you say that, what does that mean? Is it an excuse for how you acted? Is it, is it a reason for, for what you've done? I mean, repentance is a change of heart. Let's do that again. Heart. Head, see, I caught it. Some of y'all didn't wake up. Heart, head, but it's my actions too. Paul's life was totally changed. A persecutor of the church grabbed up all the Old Testament scrolls we believe he could find and went out to the desert for years, the scripture says. And as one of my, my New Testament professors says, I love this. He went into the, Old, into the desert with the Old Testament in his hands and came back with the New Testament written on his heart. And look how we've all been affected by his life. 
I know that when we get to heaven, there will be a, a line for certain people to meet, you know? Don't you think? I mean, there's certain people in the scripture, like you read their name and you're like, I mean, that's nice, cool, whatever. I don't know that I need to spend any time with that lady or that guy, whatever. But there's certain people, you know there's gonna be a line. Hey man, tell me about that night that they lowered you out of the window in the basket. Tell me about that, that day that the church was scared of you and didn't wanna receive you even after you came to Christ. Tell me about the day that you were in jail and all of a sudden, the, the whole place shook and, and the doors flew open and that Philippian jailer was about to kill himself, but you shouted, don't do it for we're all still here. And that guy's life was changed. That guy's life repented just like you did. Repentance. Do you remember the story of Cornelius? Cornelius was a religious guy. He was a good guy. He did great things for the Jewish faith. He, he even built him a synagogue. He, he was a, a God-fearing kind of man, the scripture says but he wasn't saved and Peter came and spoke to him and he received the good news of salvation and his life was completely changed. See, that's repentance. We often picture it like this. We're walking towards whatever we want in this direction and repentance means a change of direction, a change of thinking, a change of acting. And I just, I want you to see that and understand that. It's a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of actions in our lives. Could there be anything more important for us today than for God's church to be renewed? Could there be anything more important for us than to have our hearts set on fire in our lives and purposes aligned with the Lord? So this message of repentance is one not just for the lost world. And I do wanna say, if you've never given your life to Christ today, we want you to. We want you to know Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died in your place so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved. But as a church, for us to, to stop acting like this is important for us is, it, is to miss the, whole, miss the whole thing. And we're going to see that in just a second. So let's look at this confirmation passage that we see in verses 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough way smooth. And everyone will see the salvation of God. Now I want you to stay right there. And I'm going to read a passage of scripture from the book of Isaiah that I want you to hear. And you just keep looking at verses three, four, or, or verses four, five, and six. And you're going to hear some, some really close similarities. Don't miss this. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, verse one says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places plain. And the glory of God will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40 follows a very interesting passage in chapter 39 of Isaiah with the story of a king named Hezekiah. Now Isaiah 39 gives you all of that, but his life is actually recorded for us 
uh, in the Old Testament, the book of the Kings and the Chronicles there, you, you, you see these things. What happened to, uh, to this king named Hezekiah is very interesting. He was a king who loved the Lord and the Bible says that he got sick and he began to, to be really sad because the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, you're going to die. This is a sickness that leads to death. Get your house in order. The Bible says that Hezekiah rolled over, faced the wall and began to weep. And before Isaiah had even left and gotten too far out of the way, the Lord said, go back to him. And he extended his life. After that, Hezekiah had some visitors that came from outside of the country and he showed them everything that he had, all the treasuries, everything that he had. And it's almost as if the Lord is saying like, you bragged on yourself here like, and you let these people, these foreigners come in and see this stuff that was meant for you and the Lord said some interesting things. He said, because of what you've done, you're gonna have peace in your days, but some of your children are going to be taken off. They'll be made eunuchs. They'll serve foreign countries. Your people will be gone. And everything in here is going to be taken out. Hezekiah's response to that is not what we would expect. His response was like, well, too bad for them, good for me. At least I get to die happily in peace. Now, this is not part of our sermon, so this is just for free. You know, this is, this is bonus money right here. But if the Lord's speaking to you about something in your life and says, hey, the ramifications of this are going to be huge down the line in your family, you gotta get this right. For you to say, ah, you know, what will it matter? I'll be gone. That's not the answer that we want. The answer that we want is to bring our lives into line with the Lord all the time. You see this process of renewal? May we never get to a point where we're just satisfied that as long as we're happy and we're living at peace, it doesn't matter what's happening to the generations that come behind us. No, we need to be living on fire for the Lord so that the generations get to see that. I, I love that song and uh, Kirk's had him here to sing for us before, Steve Green, and he sings this song, may every generation that comes behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. Let me ask you a question. Could somebody find the way by the light of your devotion to the Lord? Is your life so on fire for the Lord that somebody else could find the way to the Lord? That's important. So what happens here, right after chapter 39 in verse 40, what I just read and what Luke quotes almost verbatim is that God is saying, there's some bad stuff that's coming, but I'm not done with you. And I've got some comfort for you coming. Now John shows up and he's saying, and Luke is pointing us to this, I am the voice. I'm the one. And as he begins to say this, there's a couple of things that he's doing. As John is, is, say, is saying, I'm the voice, and he's the one who comes before the Messiah calling people to stop being pretenders. Remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to a religious group of people and he's saying, you guys are pretenders. Now, you understand why we all need renewal. You, you can be here and you can be a pretender. You can be faking it this morning. You can be here and you can look the part. You can know what to say. You can know when to stand up. You can know when to sit down. But that doesn't mean anything if our heart is not aligned with the Lord. And so as he begins to say this to this group of people and encourage them to, to find the Lord, notice what he says. It, it's really important. He says a couple of things about how we need to get to the Messiah. One is he says, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. 
Every valley will be filled. Mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. Rough ways, smooth. Now, if you're a traveler trying to get somewhere, isn't it better when you don't have to cross the mountains? Isn't it better when you don't have to go down into the valley and come back the other side? What he's saying is, I I want you to know that when when the Messiah comes, it's going to be made straight. But I think there's a a second meaning perhaps for us here as well. Do you remember that Jesus spoke about some of these things in the Beatitudes? And we've studied this in Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus said some very interesting things in his first sermon to the world that was listening. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You you begin to see what he's saying is that the the proud will be brought low, the humble will be brought up. He's bringing all things into accordance to where they need to be. The crooked person, he's saying those crooked ways that you have need to be made straight. And I love this last one when he says, the rough places are going to be made smooth. When I was a kid, there were a couple of times a year that we would travel out to this place that if the water wasn't too high, you could be on a gravel road and cross the same, to call it a river is a little bit much, but a creek, you know, maybe as far as, I don't know, here for me to the third or fourth row up there. But you could cross it in a car if the water wasn't so high. And we would go there. And one of the things that I loved about going there is that this, this little creek or, or river was filled with stone. And it just had tons of river rock in it. And they were smooth. Well, why were they smooth? They had sat in that water for so long, right? And it had just rubbed over and rubbed over and the sediment passing by had made it smooth. It's different than the rocks that are in my yard. You ever pick up a rock in your yard and it's all jagged and, and everything like that? But I used to love to go to this creek because we would, we would take turns trying to, to skip rocks across and see if you could skip it and get it all the way across multiple skips and, and those kind of things and who could find the best rock and whatnot. And as I think about that, I, I just see this picture for our lives of, of what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. And, and our rough places are constantly being made smooth by the Holy Spirit. That's the process of sanctification. And that just means, that's just a big word that means you becoming more like Christ. So I want to ask you this question, like, like where are you in that process? Has it, has it been kind of stunted in your life and it's stopped? Are you the same today as really as you were when, when you met Christ? I hope that my life is different and reflects more of who Jesus is than it It did 30 years ago when I came to saving faith in Christ. If it hasn't, something's dramatically wrong, isn't it? I'm pretending. I'm just a pretender. Oh, I had a lot of exuberance. I had an emotional experience. No, that's not the same as repentance. That's not the same as my life being brought into conformity here. And we're going to see in the next week how John looked at people and he began talking to them And he would say to them, you do this, it's time for you to do this in keeping with repentance. You're acting this way, it's time to act this way. And we understand as believers that our lives are to be lived that way. And and so I hope that what starts to take place over the next few weeks for all of us is is one of maybe three or four things. One is that I hope if, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, today that you'll recognize that he's real. The reason that John 
I'm sorry, that Luke, introducing us to John, gives us all these historical parameters for us. You can go back and look at that. Go back and look at what people say about Jesus. Don't just take it from the scripture. He's a real person. He did real things. He was miraculous and salvation for us. I want you to know that. But also, if, if I may dare to be so bold today, not to call myself John the Baptist, I hope you hear the same message that John was preaching though. Repentance. Because the scripture is so clear to us that for us to have a relationship with God the Father, it comes through Christ the Son. And the only way for that to happen is for you to repent. When you recognize that you're a sinner. And I'll, just two things. The scripture tells us that there are sins of commission and sins of omission. There's sins in your life that you knew this was wrong and you did it anyway. You didn't care. I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. But there's sins of omission where as you grow in Christ or you begin reading the Bible, you go, ooh, I didn't know that was wrong. Right, you omitted what you were supposed to do in keeping the law. And Jesus came and died so that we could have our sins in total, totally forgiven. And the scripture says that everybody who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. We place our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the savior of the world, and trust that his death on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God. And the Bible says that's salvation for us. And so if you're not saved today, why not let today be the day of salvation? Why not give your life to Christ? We want you to know Christ. We want you to walk with Christ. We want you to repent of your sins and experience the forgiveness that comes in knowing Jesus. But I also feel like for us as believers, When was the last time your life was really renewed? You know when you're talking about that silence and how deafening it is? One of the things that I think has been so encouraging to me about what I'm seeing and you're seeing, we're all witnessing with what's sweeping across our nation and I pray that it continues, is that has it not seemed that for a while it's just been quiet? We've not seen an extraordinary movement of God in our land and we need it. And so we need renewal. We constantly need to be going before the Lord and, and checking to see that our heart, our mind is aligned with him and his purposes. That, that's not something for our young people to do. That's for all of us to do. It's for us to humbly submit ourselves to the Lord and just say, hey, how about a checkup today? Am I who I need to be in Christ? Am I reflecting accurately who you want me to be? Or, or Lord, is there some disconnect in my life with what I'm watching, how I'm speaking, places I'm going, the relationships that I have with people? There's something else. And I want you to see this in verse six. In chapter three, John the Baptist said, and Luke records it for us, when all of this takes place, everyone will see the salvation of God. Do you know how to tell when you have a white hot passion for the Lord Jesus Christ? You get concerned with the things that Jesus is concerned about. One of the things that we see in all the great revival movements of our country is this, this call of the people who respond to go forth and preach the good news. It's people called into missions. It's people called into the pastorate. It's people called to be Sunday school teachers. It's people called to serve in their, their, local, their local situation in mission. They, they step into that 
because they see the glory of God in salvation and there's nothing more important than that. Our 401k becomes less important than that. Our next trip, our next purchase, our kids become less important than that. Everything becomes less important than that. All we can see is that salvation is for everyone and we want everyone to see it. That's what John was pointing to. When we get the vision of what God is doing in renewal, it starts to affect how we view all humanity because no longer do we see people as black and white or, or ethnically this or ethnically that. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic status they have. It doesn't matter where they go to school. They only fall in two camps, saved and lost. When the church doesn't care about those two camps, something's wrong. We're drifting. That's all that matters. Is my friend gonna go to hell or are they gonna go to heaven? Is my family member gonna go to hell or are they gonna go to heaven? I want people to see the vision of Jesus Christ lifted up, the savior of the world. Isn't that our purpose? And so I'm gonna ask you now to spend just a few minutes with me in prayer. And I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and start praying before the Lord quietly if you've never given your life to Christ, why not today? Do it right now. And if you're a believer, are you in need of renewal? I am. God, our Father, how we come grateful into your presence and pray. And as we approach the throne room of grace, we do so covered by the blood of Christ. God, I believe that you're stirring in our country. I believe you're stirring in our hearts. And Father, we need renewal. Father, may it be in our day that the words of Malachi ring true that the children of the sons and daughters turn to the father and the, the fathers to their children, you begin to do a new work in our lives. For the one who's not saved today, we pray for them today, that you would draw them to salvation, convict them of their sin, and let them see the beauty of Jesus Christ dying in their place. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, would you help us tune out the distractions today? As we prepare for our renewal conference tonight, would you help us, Lord, to come with expectant hearts and give Drake a word as he speaks to us that will encourage our hearts and challenge us? God, make our hearts like yours. Father, may we be a church today that heralds the Messiah and prepares the way for others to come behind us and know Christ. And we ask these things be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.